Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, I want to echo what um, Brandon said and welcome all of you who are uh, part of Space Weekend and to our church family who participated in that. We're, we're glad you're here with us today. Um, Teacher Mike Baldwin, or Mike Wilson of Baldwin, Missouri, had his elementary students study the presidential election process here in America. And, and over the years, from the, the resulting essays and exams, he kind of called some insights, if you will, from uh, some of these young people. For instance, calling a person a runner-up is the polite way of saying you lost. The president has the power to appoint and disappoint the members of his cabinet. A dark horse is a candidate that the delegates don't know enough about to dislike yet. When they talk about the most promising presidential candidate, they mean the one who can think of the most things to promise. And finally, elephants and donkeys never fought until politics came along. And yet, it's amazing how corrosive and even mean-spirited politics has become and how often elephants and donkeys are now, it seems like, always fighting. Republicans and Democrats seem to be constantly engaged in finger-pointing, but it's, it's more than the disagreements. Because seeing things differently and even having somewhat differing visions for a nation shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't be wrong. But it's the tone and the manner of disagreements that seem to be constantly escalating. And to some degree, the parties may believe that that, that's, that serves a purpose because it fires up their constituencies, it helps fundraising, it gives 24-hour news networks a lot of material on otherwise slow news days. The whole process has created a, a life and culture of its own, proving that we do live in a mad, mad world, a mad as in an angry world, a mad as in a crazy world. Those of us who are Christians need to talk about politics. But i got to tell you, for a while I felt like I'm really not too eager to actually do a message on this because I'd, I'm a, I was afraid that no matter what I said, I'd make half of you mad. Interestingly, studies have shown that up through the 1970s, both political parties were fairly evenly represented in churches. And, and the church was a place where people could disagree, but they did it agreeably. And because of the setting of the church, of community, of love, they let their faith in Christ come first. And from there, then, they worked out their own politics, how they understood it. However, a recent study and book by University of Pennsylvania political scientist Michelle Margolis says, over the last 40 years, the process has largely reversed. And now, for many, not all, but for many, politics comes first, and then a person's politics tends to determine their faith. In other words, their party's politics tends to influence a person's faith decisions. They first as they grow up, come to a, a decision about a party and then apply faith to that. Margolis' observation was that people now tend to migrate to churches or to settings where people hold similar political views, and this has polarized 
many churches, and even churches versus those who don't go to church. So that we're losing the communal church environment where faith and relationships come first, in which enabled people to hold different views and still be kind and loving to each other. And yet, I will just tell you, that's what I want for our church, to be a place where there is no political party litmus test. So my purpose and prayer this morning isn't to encourage you to, to pick or advocate advocate for a side in the politics going on around us. But instead, look at how Jesus wants his disciples to wade through the politics of the culture we find ourselves in. And what's really amazing is that Jesus actually faced just such a predicament and through his infinite wisdom shows us how to proceed in a way that both honors God and allows us to stand up for our own beliefs in healthy ways. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the, the Gospels are about three-quarters of the way through the Bible in the New Testament, and Mark is the second of the Gospels. Uh, you can also use the Version Bible app, and if you have neither of those, as always, we've included an insert in your bulletin that has the Scriptures listed there and some places to fill in the blank or write in your own notes. Now, just to set a little bit of the setting, after Jesus had entered Jerusalem, on what is historically called Palm Sunday, leading up to Passover, probably on Tuesday of his last week on earth, we read that the Jewish officials were trying to find ways to trap him, even if, even if they had to work with different Jewish groups who actually disagreed with each other. And so we start in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says, later the leader sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Now, the supporters of Herod, the Herodians, were in general supportive of Rome the, the, and the Roman occupation and their policies, while the Pharisees, who were, had the, the support of most of the Jewish people, were, wanted to obey all of God's laws as they understood them so that they believed God would act and ultimately overthrow the Romans. And yet both groups felt like they had a lot to lose through the ministry of Jesus. And so they joined together in the classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And when you see enemies coming together against a common cause, look out. So in verse 14, they say, teacher, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? I mean, that's classic flattery. I mean, I, I, I almost have to think as they were saying it, they had their fingers crossed behind their backs, you know, as they were going forward with it. Teacher was a title of great respect, which they certainly did not feel toward Jesus. And they were saying he's honest, he's impartial, and it teaches the way of God truthfully. And yet what's interesting is their flattery was actually the truth but they have devised what appears to be the perfect trap about taxes that requires a yes or no answer from Jesus. And either way that he answers, they've got him. If he says yes, then the, the Jewish people will see him as a traitor, and they will turn against him because these taxes remind them that they're not free. They're subject to the Romans. 
But if he says no, then the Romans can arrest him for opposing them. So it seems like whatever Jesus says is going to condemn him with a significant group of the the people around him and and take care of the religious leaders' problems with him. So they had to be thinking pretty good of themselves right about then. Like, look what we've pulled off. We got him here. But then we continue reading in verse 15. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. In other words, Jesus says, uh, the, Mark tells us Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy and asks why they're trying to trap him. And then he asked them to show them a Roman coin. And I've put one up here, got one up here on the screen for you to just see both sides. It would have been a denarius, um, a day's wage for a typical laborer, and it was what the Romans required of any person in order to pay their taxes. They had to use Roman coinage. And coinage in biblical times was a sign of power because anytime a king conquered a nation, he would immediately issue his own coinage as a sign of authority and power. And wherever the coin was accepted meant that the king reigned there. So on one side of a denarius was a picture of Tiberius Caesar, the current Roman king, if you will, with words indicating that he was believed by the Romans to be divine. And on the other side was an image of his mother, Livia, with words meaning high priest. Now, to the Jews, both of these ideas were really offensive because they, the, the Romans were claiming that, that their emperor was a god, breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments, and because it depicted his mother as a, a, as a priest. And yet they had no difficulty producing a denarius, even though they hated what it stood for. They had no problem producing a denarius for Jesus. But instead of answering their yes or no question, Jesus asks them a question. He asks, whose picture and title are stamped on the coin? And the answer, obvious answer, is Caesar. But then Jesus responds with a, a brilliant but but really kind of an ambiguous answer. Verse 17, he says, Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And it says his reply completely amazed them. Jesus outmaneuvered their trap. Because each listener heard what they wanted to hear. The Herodians heard someone affirming Caesar's rule. The Pharisees heard this veiled rejection of Caesar's authority and the priority of God himself because from Scripture, the Jews could ask, well, what really does belong to Caesar? After all, Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. But what Jesus said was even deeper than just about the image of Caesar because Scripture also spoke of the image stamped on each one of us, each person. In Genesis 1.27, it says God created human beings in His own image. Now, that doesn't mean in terms of physicalness, but in terms of what it means to be a person, what it means to love 
and, and, and how we see things. And so while the coin might appear to belong to Caesar, the Jews knew everything, including each person created with the image of God stamped on them, belongs to God. In truth, Caesar actually owns nothing. So Jesus' answer amazed them, because probably because he, he not only completely evaded their trap, but he had made this profound statement about God. But his statement goes further in ways that may not have been so obvious to the Jews at that point, but combined with other New Testament scriptures shows Christians what are God's instructions about governments. And first, that is that civil governments, in fact, are a part of God's plan, and He expects us to submit to them. Jesus affirmed it, so did the apostles Peter and and Paul. In Romans 13, Paul writes, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, for the Lord's sake, Submit to all human authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials he's appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Paul and Peter, the two big names, if you will, of the New Testament after Jesus, both acknowledged that civil authorities are intended to bring order and to, and to punish wrongdoers so that the Christians can practice their faith, hopefully, in peace. And, and as I say that, I, it's really important for us to remember. It is believed that both Paul and Peter, who spoke authoritatively through Scripture on behalf of God, were martyred for their Christian faiths by Roman Emperor Nero, not long after each of them wrote these scriptures. So, so it's not like they're talking, you know, pie in the sky or this is no big deal. They didn't write this stuff naively, but we would say in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And so we need to remember that throughout scripture, we see God working through governments, using often even secular or pagan authorities and kings to accomplish his purposes. You say, now wait a minute, they would use a pagan or secular? Yes, if you go back and you look through Scripture, you'll see a number of examples, including the case of King Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon that conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple as punishment to the Jews for their sins. And yet if you go back and you read all the prophets of that time, all of the god uh, uh, in, uh, empowered prophets, it was clear that they believed, they testified that though those kings or Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize it, he was in fact an instrument of God's. God can work even through those who do not believe. Second, God expects us to pay taxes. Boo, hiss. Romans 13, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, that doesn't mean we can't work through government, 
to have our taxes changed, certainly in this country, but God expects us to pay whatever taxes are lawfully set. And yet, third, God takes it a step further and commands us to pray for governing authorities. Paul writes to Timothy, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Now, again, let me be really clear. This isn't about whether we voted for that person or persons. It's not about which political party they represent or which political party we are in. In fact, Paul wrote this to Timothy about a government which neither of them had had any say in coming into power. It was a dictatorship. Praying for leaders is not an endorsement of the individual but is seeking for God to work in and through the position, the office, that they respond to God's wisdom so that His will be done. I mean, let's just be honest in our country, and, and, and over the last 10 years, just about everybody's been unhappy at one time or another with whoever's been president. But it doesn't matter according to Scripture, according to God. We are called to pray for them, whether we voted for them or we didn't. And yet, finally, God is not calling for blind obedience. When a government ceases to function as it was intended, then it is appropriate to exercise our right to vote, to change the government. And should that fail, and the government calls us to choose between it and God, God expects us to choose Him over ruling, any ruling authority. In Acts, it says, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. That's what Jesus was saying when he told the religious leaders to give to God what belongs to God. We were created in his image, and so we belong to him. And so ultimately, our lives, for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, our lives belong to him over any ruling authority. Paul said, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. So, contrary to what's too often happening today in our culture, Christians are to place God over any political party. Our faith needs to determine our decisions in the political realm versus our political identity determining our faith decisions. Jesus calls his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. And the Bible calls us to be ambassadors in this world, realizing our home is the kingdom of God. It's heaven. That's our ultimate home. And and as we've been saying in this series, an ambassador represents another country in a foreign land. And while the ambassador interacts with the culture around them, that ambassador is always committed to their home country and stays true to the ways and norms of that land or that realm. And as Christians, we live by by the norms 
of our homeland, the kingdom of God, of heaven, instead of the world we find ourselves in. So our purpose is to represent the interests of our native land, of heaven, in this foreign land. The Bible says in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, those of us who call Jesus Savior and Lord, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so as ambassadors, listen, we don't have to abandon our political beliefs, but we don't put them ahead of the values of the kingdom of God and our King, Jesus Christ. We live as Christ lived and preached. And what did he do? He loved God and he loved neighbor. In fact, he said, we're even to love our enemies. And you know what that means? It means I don't have to like or agree with someone else's politics. And yet, as a follower of Jesus, I still must treat them with kindness and respect. And I don't demonize them because of their political beliefs, regardless of whether they're a follower of Jesus or not. That's not how we're called to live. I'm not saying, at the same time, I'm not saying that we're called to be ambivalent about the politics of our land. But we put it in its proper place under God and strive to live as Christ's ambassadors. Now, I'm not going to kid you and say it's easy. And there are times when the politics of, of one party or, or a particular group can drive us crazy or, or just seem plain idiotic. And please, I am not speaking of anybody or any particular party right now. I want to be really clear. Wherever you fall on that line, at some point or another, if that's important to you, you know that's been true. But God has already laid out how you and I who follow Jesus are supposed to proceed in spite of my feelings. If more Christians followed God's teachings, we could be a calming influence. And the, and the atmosphere of our politics might not be so heated and destructive. I, I believe this has always been the way our most godly leaders have understood their place in the political world. Not pointing fingers at each other, but striving to point our fingers skyward to our true king. As I was reading this week, I came across something that really caught my attention. A pastor named Dan Meyer shared a very interesting insight into this and what he called the right kind of finger pointing. And while there is certainly no explicit plan spelled out anywhere in what I'm about to share with you, the facts, I think, can speak for themselves. The Washington Monument rises 555 feet toward the heavens, pointing upward. Doesn't point to the right, doesn't point to the left. It points up. Now, of course, those of us here in Texas know that the San Jacinto Monument is 12 feet taller, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> when the Washington Monument's cornerstone was set on July 4th, 1848, 
A copy of the Bible was placed inside that cornerstone by President James Polk as a sign of the role that the Word of God originally, as it originally played such a cornerstone of the nation's vision and lives of so many of its first leaders. Now, what's interesting is fanning out from the monument, four other major landmarks are laid out on straight lines, like compass points of the monument's center. We have the White House to the north. We have the, um, let me find my place. The Jefferson Memorial to the south, we have the Capitol building to the east, and we have the Lincoln Memorial to the west. And from above, as this diagram tries to depict, they form a cross. But there's more. On the aluminum cap atop the monument, there's some text. This is, a, an, this is aluminum, a picture of the actual, an actual cap up there on the top. And there are some things engraved around it, but on one side are two words engraved that no tourist has ever seen. Right here. And I, I, I tried to find a better picture of this, and maybe it's a, it's a sign of the times. This was as good as I could find. But it's the Latin phrase, laus Deo. And these words are the last words of the 68th Psalm, and they are translated, praise be to God. Praise be to God. The Washington Monument this, this monument pointing, pointing upward in our nation's capital stands as a reminder that at least some Americans saw themselves as living for the praise of God over self or party or even country. I've always loved what Chuck Colson said. You remember Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was one of Nixon's hatchet men, got sent to jail, found Christ in prison. And, and became one of the, our strongest advocates in the latter part of the 20th century for, for Christ and, and um, began prison ministries and, and all over the world. Chuck Colson, in a great quote to me, said, the kingdom of God won't arrive on Air Force One. See, this, this symbol, this Washington Monument, affirms, I think, what Jesus and the Bible have been telling us. Christians must place First in their lives, their God. And when we do that, even when our politics, over our politics in our country, God will work in us and through us as ambassadors for Christ so that our faith determines our politics and ultimately blesses our land. It says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If the people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will heal their land. And so I believe this picture points us who follow Jesus in what we need to do, how we need to live. And hopefully, I haven't angered too many of you, but what I've done is I've pointed to where those of us who follow Christ have to put our allegiance first. And that's not always 
popular. But when you professed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's what you said you would do. When you went under the waters in baptism, you said, I die to that which was. And as I come up out of the water, I am resurrected to new life in Christ. And that's why we're excited to offer baptism this evening. And if you feel God leading to that right after this service, you can go down to our Life Center, and there's a class there, and they'll be happy to talk to you about that. Also, we have groups because, you know, one of the things that that struck me as I was doing a lot of reading this week is how often we talk past each other or we engage through social media at such a superfluous level that we never talk. And in the church, it was always the idea that we were a community, that we came together in faith. And that's why groups are so important, to come together, to get to know one another, and to sometimes agree to disagree. But that's okay. Christians can do that on things that don't strike at the heart of salvation. And most things don't. And yet, people on opposite sides of the aisle can learn to shake hands and be brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they see the political paths of our country differently. So I want to encourage you, if you aren't in a group, several hundred of you have signed up this this fall, but there's still room for more. Uh, You can do that also out in our lobby. We've just begun this week, so you won't be be terribly far behind. Um, And if you're a guest today, again, as said earlier, I will be out here with some friends. We'd love to say hello to you uh, here this morning. Would you join me as we close then in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you so much that you have loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ and that you've given us this land that many of us call home, that many of us have found the freedom to worship you as we see fit and to acknowledge you are our God. You are our Savior and Lord. Help us, Father, to keep that first for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And if we have not put our faith in Jesus, Father, help us explore whether or not that's something we need to do, whether or not our kingdom maybe is wrapped up in the wrong setting. It needs to be the kingdom of God, heaven, versus some earthly kingdom. We pray that you would lead us forward, that we could be salt and light, that we could be influences in this world today, not to bring more hatred and anger, but to bring the love of Christ to play in every setting, including politics. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.